0: Let's open in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at the first couple of verses there. Let me open by saying, He is risen. Okay, okay. I was trying to catch you off guard three weeks out of Easter To see if you still remember, like John said, that Jesus is risen, that we think about this, we meditate on this, we study this long after the actual celebration of Easter Sunday. This means something to our Christian faith and to our lives. Jesus is risen. Man, I've enjoyed these past nine months together that we've studied the life of Jesus. We have seen him as the cornerstone of this church. He is our cornerstone, and we order our lives, we order this local fellowship, we, we order the universal fellowship, the church of God, around who Jesus is, and we've done that for nine months, and then these next three weeks, John and I are going to kind of land the plane, so to speak. We're going to wrap this section of Jesus as our cornerstone to a close, and we're going to do that by looking at two very important passages Paul wrote in our New Testament as he looks back over the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and unpack what this means as we tie this together. And then next month, we are going to begin a series on the Psalms that we'll do together. But let me read for us these eight verses from 1 Corinthians 15. then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your gospel as a historic reality, as a present power that you would show us and that we would feel this in our hearts this morning. We ask in your son's name. Amen. You know, what Paul's going to do in this passage is just two things. He's going to show us that the gospel is a historic reality and he's going to show us that the gospel is a present power. That's what he's going to do. It's a historic reality. It really happened. And it is a, a present power. It's really doing something today, now, in you and me and in our city. That's what he does. Um, You know, I had a fascinating conversation, not this week, but the week before, with a woman who is not a believer, not religious at all, but she began asking me questions about my faith, which is just a wonderful experience to have, and I got to begin to explain what it means to be a Christian, what the gospel is, what the story of the Bible is. At one point in our conversation, she actually asked me, what's the difference between religion and the gospel? I hear you using those two words, what's the difference? What a fantastic question to have somebody ask you and say, you know, religion is based on what you do for Jesus, and the gospel is based on what Jesus has done for you. Well, as we kind of wrapped our conversation to a close, she said this. She said, you know, I have a very intense scientific background, and all of that is screaming in my ear as I hear you talk about Jesus living and dying and rising from the dead. Um, And so I can't go there yet, but I just love humanity's ability to grab a hold of something and believe it and find hope in it. I mean, it's just a—it was a very sweet way to say to me. Uh, I don't think this is actually true, but I love that you think it's true. And I got to push back with her just a little bit and say, "I, I hear what you're saying about this, but I'm telling you that I literally believe that Jesus." came and lived a perfect life and died for sin and rose again in the body and ascended to the right hand of God. I literally believe that this actually happened. I'm not, I'm not in this for the warm and fuzzy feelings. I am desperate to order my life around something that is true, and if I find this not to be true, that Jesus really didn't rise again from the dead, I'm out of here. I'm doing something else. I'm not here for those feelings. And it was wonderful to be able to push against her because I think one of the inheritances that we have of postmodernism is that we treat the physical world and the spiritual world very differently, right? Um, All of us still agree that there are rules to the physical world. Whether you believe them or not, there are things that are scientifically true about this world, and you better get on track with those as quick as possible. One of those things is gravity. It doesn't really matter what you feel or believe about gravity. If you cease to believe it and you try to order your life around something besides it, like heading out for work from your second story window, that reality is going to catch up with you real quick. But somehow with the spiritual world, we treat that anything goes. It doesn't matter what you believe about the spiritual world, whether there's one God or many gods or no God or I'm your God, all of that's, that's fair for us. This kind of postmodern relativistic spirituality is all fun and games until you stand up and say, I actually believe that my God got up from the dead in this physical world, that he resurrected and ascended to heaven, that he is seated at the right hand of God, and that he is a king calling for himself a kingdom of saints. Everything's fun and games until you say... My God breaks into this present reality, and he literally did what he said that he did. This kind of God, we saw in Matthew 28, we saw when Jesus first resurrected from the dead, doesn't just bring warm and fuzzy feelings, it brings shock and astonishment and mystery and even fear as we see one who is totally unlike anything we have ever seen before get up from the grave and defeat death. It's that historic bedrock of reality that we're talking about basing our faith on. It's that Jesus literally did these things. I mean, Paul's going to go on and write in his letter, right here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Do you hear what Paul is saying right now? Paul is saying, if Christ wasn't literally raised from the dead, Christianity is worthless, and you are an idiot. I mean, Paul's not one to to mince words here. He's going to write in his next letter all the ways he almost died, taking this very message to all the corners of the Mediterranean world and planting churches. For the apostle Paul, who is banking his life on these things, he is talking about, a historic reality. He's not interested in warm and fuzzy feelings. He's not interested in what could have possibly happened. He is interested in banking his life on what literally happened. And so Paul reminds the church in Corinth, there are three ways for them to know that Jesus literally rose again from the dead. Tradition, the scriptures, and eyewitnesses. These are three ways that Corinth can know that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, truly, Corinth is not wrestling with this. This is common ground that Paul is starting with. So he's able to blitz through these three really quickly. But I think it helps us today to revisit Paul's proofs of the resurrection. Let's look at these three. First of all, he says tradition. We know that Jesus died sometime between A.D. 30 and A.D. 33. And we know that Paul planted this church sometime around A.D. 50. And he's probably writing this letter to the church five years after that. So what we have here is a short 15-year window for Paul to be able to say, the things I'm telling you right now of what's first importance, they're not my words. They're words I received as a tradition before me. In this short 15-year window, Paul is already quoting a tradition that has surrounded what has happened with Jesus. So when you visit Dan Brown and all these interesting church thriller novels about a church structure growing up around Constantine and suppressing some storylines and boosting other storylines, all of that is late to the party. Because Paul is saying, look, we're 15 years into this thing and people are dying. People are being stoned and cast into prison because they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What I'm telling you, I got from somebody else. They told me this thing. So first of all, we have tradition. Secondly, we have the scriptures. Paul is saying to them, this is not something new. This does not surprise us. We can go back and look at Scripture and see this is God's plan for thousands and thousands of years. And so he writes in verse 4, "...Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." Now, I don't think Paul has any one text in mind. I think he has in mind what we've been doing this entire year, pulling many different texts to show that Jesus came to do what God said he would always do. He could be thinking about passages like Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 or Hosea 6 to say, God has always planned to do this in Jesus, and we are the benefactors. We are seeing what he has planned to do. So we have tradition, we have scriptures, and finally we have eyewitnesses. Now, I had a wonderful experience in New York City a couple of years ago. I was sitting on the subway, and I was sitting probably about two rows away from Jimmy Fallon, the late night host. I mean, it was incredible. But I learned very quickly what Paul already knows intuitively, and that is nobody believes you unless you have eyewitnesses. I mean, nobody believes my story about this. And so Paul is kind of preempting that, and he's saying, look, let me give you a bunch of witnesses. And he gives us this list. He says Cephas, which is Peter, the 12, 500 brothers, James, all the apostles, finally to Paul. This is a fascinating list that deserves study in its own right, but we don't have time for that. But what Paul is saying is, a bunch of people saw Jesus risen from the dead, and many of those people are still alive today. If you have questions about what I'm saying, get a bus ticket, find one of these 500, and ask them for yourself. They saw Jesus rise from the dead. These these verses here, verse 3 to 8, are all doing the same thing. They're working in these three ways to say, What we're talking about here is a historic reality. The gospel that we believe is rooted in history. When we say, Jesus is risen, we don't mean his spirit is risen, the memory of Jesus is risen, his teachings live on in us, we have warm and fuzzy feelings about Jesus. We mean Jesus in the body is risen. And that's what Paul supports with this evidence. But the gospel, of course, is not just a historic reality. It's not just a history lesson. It's not just something on the page that we learn. It's not just propositions. It's power. It does something. Even though it's history, it does something today. And that's what Paul is writing about in verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Paul's not saying the gospel I preached to you, which you tested well on. He knows it's more than information. He's saying the gospel that I preached to you left my mouth, it entered your heart, and it changed you forever. It did something in you. You were impacted, you were changed. You are a different person because you heard this reality than you were before you received it. I mean, verses 3 through 8, that's talking about the announcement. Paul is giving us the gospel in a nutshell, and it's all about Jesus. Jesus is referenced seven times in those verses, verses 3 through 8. Verses 1 and 2 is really talking about our response. And so the word you, which is referring to Corinth and extends to us, occurs eight times. It's talking about what is our response to the gospel. And you'll notice that there are three verb tenses for how we respond to the gospel. Look at these three that Paul mentions, because it's very important for us understanding how we receive the gospel. First of all, Paul says, which you received. This is the simple past tense. Paul is saying, there was a point in time, Corinth, and for many of you sitting here as a Christian, that you first heard the gospel and first understood it and repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus. You were saved when you first believed in the gospel. But then he uses another tense. He says, the second tense, in which you stand. That's not a past tense thing. That's a present tense. And the gospel is as dynamic today in the Christian's life than it was when we first believed. I want us to think about the gospel like a passport, okay? We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but we live on an earth that operates by very different rules and very different ideas, and every time we face temptation or doubt, that's a demand to see our passport. You can't leave the gospel back in the safe deposit box, because when you get up this morning and you leave from here, Satan is going to begin to whisper in your ear, What are you doing at a place like Columbia Press? You don't belong in this group of people. Look at this. This is a nice crowd with people who have their lives cleaned up, and I know that that's not the case for you. How is it that you think that Jesus is going to forgive you a hundredth time for the exact same sin? How is it that you think a real Christian would save the things you say and live the way you live? We are inundated with Satan's temptations to us. And when we hear that, if we are standing in the gospel, we take out that as our passport and we say, Satan, you don't know the half of it. You've accused me of a hundred things. I have a hundred more. I don't stand here today because I've cleaned myself up, because I have answers to your questions, because I belong with a nice group of people. I stand here today only and forever because I have believed in Jesus and he has cleansed me of my sin and when he rose from the dead, he defeated death and that is my only hope. That's why I'm here. That is our gospel identification. That's why we stand in the gospel today. I'm convinced that we could reduce two-thirds of our counseling questions when we sit down with one another and talk to one another by asking the question, in what are you standing right now? In what are you standing in your anxiety and your depression? What are you standing in right now in your temptation to sin and to turn your back on the Lord? What are you standing in right now when you are fearful? Because where I'm sitting, it doesn't look like the gospel. Friends, the gospel is a dynamic reality today, is as much so today as it was when we first believed. And when Paul talks to Corinth, he says, Look, you guys believed in this thing, but you are also standing in the gospel. And then finally, he says, through which you are being saved. So that's kind of a present-future tense, and Paul is going to use this construction three times. It's a present process that leads to a future reality, and reading this might make us a little bit uncomfortable because we know from reading our Bibles, it seems like a person is either saved or they're not saved, right? They're either born again or they're not born again. So why is Paul talking about being saved in the process of experiencing this, this salvation? Well, it becomes clear by reading verse 2. This is his caveat. This is what he means. By which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, Paul is laying down kind of a startling warning in which our very salvation is in question and we would all do well to pay attention to what he's saying. What is he talking about to say you are a Christian if you didn't believe in vain? Scripture has two messages that it very clearly announces to every Christian. The first message is, you are absolutely assured in your salvation. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are not here now because you have impressed Jesus by your Christian life. You're here because Jesus has cleansed you, and you can be assured in that, and the Spirit will testify to your spirit that you really are born again. You can have assurance of salvation. But then the other message that Scripture delivers is beware of turning your back on Jesus. The person who rejects the gospel and rejects Jesus, even if they spent some time in their life looking like a Christian, talking like a Christian, smelling like a Christian, if they turn their back on that very same gospel, they are in danger of eternal punishment. Those are the two messages that that Scripture is giving but it sometimes feels like that, that mail gets crossed and that message arrives at the wrong Christian. The wrong Christian is reading the wrong message. You guys know what I'm talking about. I mean, think about a passage like First Corinthians 6 where Paul says, if you dive headlong into your sin... If you have no regard for Jesus as king who is telling you to order your life around him and you want to do what you want to do and live how you want to live and when any brother comes to confront you about that, you say, don't talk to me about this. I want to live my life my own way. 1 Corinthians 6 says, if you dive headlong into your sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you have no regard for the king, if you have said no to the king, if you reject him, he rejects you, and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, who's reading that passage? Is the young man who's, who's getting drunk and high on the weekend, who's sleeping with his girlfriend, who's not connected to a local body, is he opening 1 Corinthians 6 and reading that and shuddering about his faith? No. That guy read somewhere on a Christian bumper sticker, once saved, always saved, and he thinks about Jesus as this sappy pushover savior that should be grateful that he even still calls himself a Christian. He's not reading that. And that is the very man for which this passage is written. This mail is for you, brother. You are living in sin and you continue on this path and you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. No, it's the, it's the Christian sister who opens this passage and who reads this thing. And she is already fraught with guilt. She is already fraught with her own, the fragility of her faith and how little she does for the kingdom. And she is so nervous about this stuff, she can't see Jesus' forgiveness six inches in front of her face. She's reading 1 Corinthians 6 and despairing about her faith. We got to get the mail to the right person. It's getting crossed with the postal service and we got to redirect these things so that this brother is hearing the warning and this sister is hearing the assurance. And so when we open up 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, we need to put the mail in the right hands. We need to understand who Paul is talking to and what he means. Paul warns in this that there is such a thing as vain faith. Those who, according to verse 2, believed in vain. So what does he mean by that? What is vain faith? Listen carefully to this. Vain faith is not weak faith. Vain faith is wrong faith. Vain faith is not, is not weak faith. It's not fragile faith. It's not the faith that's represented by every single Christian in this room that's up one day and down the next. Faith is not about that. Put, put positively, faith is not about you, it's about Jesus. It's not about the strength of your faith, it's about the object that your faith is in. It's okay if you have fragile faith. It's okay if you have doubts in your life. It's okay if your faith is stronger in the morning and weaker come one o'clock in the afternoon, provided that that faith is in this kind of gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15, what I received of first importance. If your faith is in that, the object of your faith is right, and your faith is true faith. But... If your faith is beginning to be directed to something else as Corinth is in trouble of, if it's finding itself in something else or some other person and not in Jesus who has died according to the scriptures, who is risen again to defeat sin and death, if it's something other than that, then you have vain faith. Your faith is wrongly directed and it is not in the gospel and you will not experience Jesus' salvation. There's such a thing as vain faith, according to verse 2. But we're going to talk about next week, there's no such thing as vain grace, according to verse 10. There's no such thing as God misplacing his grace in our life. And that's the joy of the Christian. This whole passage is really working together to do these two things. Paul is saying to us, the gospel is a bedrock reality. As sure as the ground under your feet and the sun that rises in the morning, I tell you that Jesus has died for your sins and literally risen in this world to defeat death and you will live forever with him. That's, you can bank your life on that. But it's also a present power. It's something that gets in your heart and begins to go to work. It's something that changed you in the past. It's something that you stand in today that promises to do new things in you. And it's something that is a present process that has a future payoff that you can't even imagine. You will be saved in this kind of gospel. That's the gospel we believe in. That's the gospel we rejoice in. Let's pray together. Father, we're overwhelmed by these two truths that we really can bank our lives on the salvation that you bring, that Jesus literally came and died and rose again from the dead to defeat sin and death, and that you will root this work into our hearts and into our lives, and you will change us because of it. I pray that you would make both of these things more and more real to us. We ask in your Son's name. Amen.